For those of you that remain, open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Have you ever asked, is God working in our lives right now? You ever asked that? And we see so many things happening in our lives and the lives of people that we care about. And it can feel as if sometimes that God is very distant and not very involved. Is he doing anything? Or I've asked the question, does God even care? And the state of our world raises this question as well as the experience in our lives. It's one thing to discuss the abstract existence of God. It's quite another thing to discuss whether it is a God who, who cares about this world, who cares about the destruction that happens in Houston and Florida and the ups and downs that happen in my own life. Have you asked this question, what should I do? Should I just ignore the issues and just live any way I want now? Should I, should I even try? Or should I just try to have it all? And not, and not worry about anything, and not worry about tomorrow. I mean, if God isn't working, if he doesn't care, does it really matter what I do with my life? Is this entire thing a waste? Or have you asked the question, does prayer really change things? You know, if we believe that God is not working or he doesn't care, then, then why would we pray? What is prayer really? You know, all of these questions are important for Every single one of us seated here this morning. Maybe you've asked these questions before. These are the questions that I hope to answer in the text this morning as we look into 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. And my goal is to read each section and, and then exposit the text as it reads. And expository preaching is, is the main way that we preach here at Edgewood Bible Church. And as preachers, we desire to explain, that's what it means, exposit, to explain the text and then to bring application to our life. And so we're going to jump into 1 Samuel and work through this this morning. And, and I'll be honest with you, if you don't have a Bible in front of you this morning, you're, you're going to be lost. You're not going to know where we're at. So if you have an electronic device, you have a Bible, great. If not, we actually have Bibles that we can give to you and take home but if you don't have one, you're, you're going to not follow where we're at. So open your Bibles, have it ready. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And before we begin, I'm going to ask the Lord to help us this morning. God, I thank you that we can come to your throne and know without a shadow of a doubt that you're sitting there eagerly waiting to hear from us. We can come with confidence before your throne. And God, I ask this morning as we come, as these questions linger in the hearts and minds of your people and those that are seated here this morning, God, I ask that you would bring answers from your word, that you would teach us, that you would guide us and lead us, that you would cause us to become different based upon the preaching of your word this morning than when we came in this morning. And we pray all this, God, for your honor and glory. May you be the focus this morning. For I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So the first question I rose is, is God working? That's The outline is these questions. If you're following, you're taking notes. First point, is God working? And we begin in the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 1. So follow with me as I read. We have some fun names here as we begin chapter 1. So we'll see how I do at pronouncing these. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathan Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name is Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of El-Ehu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other is Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And so as we launch into 1 Samuel 1, it begins by introducing to us a family, Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And in this family, it's, it's Peninnah who, is, who has children, but Hannah doesn't have any. She is barren. At the end of verse 5, it says, The Lord had closed her womb. Although it was permitted, it was never wise to have multiple wives. And it seems from the text that Elkanah married Hannah first. But because she had no children and then no future without kids to take care of them in their old age, he then marries Peninnah. And from the outside, it looks as though Hannah had almost everything. Her name actually means favored one. She had a husband that loved her. 
that provided for her. She had a social standing. She had a, a moderate wealth because he was able to not only support himself and one wife, but another wife and children. And she had a faithful religion. And it's striking to me that this story begins with the commonness of life. Elkanah and Hannah, they're, they're nobodies, really. Their importance is their unimportance. They're common and, and non-glamorous. And in a world today that is constantly infatuated with a celebrity, we begin to think that the only way that God gets things done is with people of importance, people with a strong and popular reputation. But time and again in the scriptures, God chooses to work through the common people, the ordinary. And Hannah was part of the faithful remnant still left in Israel. There were others, and we'll see them in the second half of chapter two when they opposed the wicked sons of, of Eli. And Hannah is here, and she is common. And it seems as though she has all that she needs except for one thing. And that one thing that's missing is children. She's barren. The Lord had closed her womb. You know, there are other women in the Old Testament that were also barren. We have Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Ruth, and even a New Testament, Elizabeth, was barren before having John the Baptist. And according to the Jewish Talmud, a person without having children was considered as good as dead. So this is serious then for Hannah. A barrenness is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. Well, in verse three, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. You would think that life is hard enough, living in a culture where children were so crucial for your future. And you could understand that Hannah might feel like a disappointment to her husband, Elkanah. She couldn't give him children. But then you add to this the, the rudeness and the disrespect of Penia, who would mock and then provoke her. You know, can you picture this? Can you see the scene? You know, Penny, I was speaking to her kids. Okay, we're going to head out. Do each of you have your food? Oh my, there's so many of you. It's hard to keep track of all you kids. Mommy, why doesn't Miss Hannah have any kids? Doesn't she want kids? Oh, I'm sure she wants kids. Don't you, Hannah? Aren't you anxious for kids? So, so mom, why doesn't she have any kids? Well, it's because God won't let her have kids. Why? Doesn't God like Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh my, how could I forget? Hannah, did I tell you that I'm having another kid this fall? It's, it's so amazing to have so many blessings. Do you think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? She provoked her. Actually, the, the Hebrew word used here literally means to thunder, to roar like a storm. That's the word to provoke. It's a sort of word to describe being in, in the center of a hurricane. And if you've seen the news lately, that's a terrifying place to be. Actually, this is the only time in the Old Testament that this word is, is not used to describe a storm. This is the way in which Penia provoked Hannah. And year after year, this would happen. You know, it's one thing to be barren. It's another to have it rubbed in your face year after year. You know, we don't know her motivation for her provoking. But church, may I say, this happens today. And it, and it happens right within this congregation by well-meaning individuals who go up to young couples who desire greatly to have kids. And they've been trying. And maybe to you they seem selfish, but in all actuality, they haven't been allowed by God to have kids. And we can be guilty, just like Benia, to provoke them, 
So I wanna encourage you, don't, don't ask young couples, so when are you guys gonna have a baby? Don't you want kids? You know, you're not getting any younger. Don't do that. God's doing something in their lives and you don't know what it is. And he may be teaching them something in their lives. And so we need to trust God and support and encourage one another in this church family. And in the scriptures, barren women seem to be God's instrument for raising up key leaders in the biblical history of redemption. God's tendency is to, is to make our total inability his starting point when we feel hopeless and helpless. This doesn't stop God. It frees us. He delights to work in the impossible situations when his people are without help, without resources, without strength, without hope and human will. God loves to stretch out his hand and work. You know, is God working? The answer is yes. He, he never stops working. He's consistently working. In verse 8, in Elkanah, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You've got to hand it to Elkanah here. You know, he's stepping up to try to love his wife. He's trying to be the good guy. He just lacks some tact here. You know, he's saying, Hannah, baby, you may not amount to much, but I love you and your love is amazing and my love should be better than 10 sons. Nice try, Elkanah, nice try. You know, he tries to give his wife romantic salvation, telling her that he could satisfy the void in her soul through this romantic love. This is the same issue our culture faces. You know, we're, we're surrounded by the, this provocation. These people who tell us that we're not valuable until we have achieved certain things in our life. You know, we need to get the house. We need to get the job. We need to get the income. We need the cars and the status and then the kids. And then we need to raise the kids. We need to raise the kids well. We need to get the kids in the good school and get the kids married and grandkids. and just keeps going on. And if we then fail to live up to those expectations, we will begin to feel worthless and dissatisfied with life. In this world, people have bought this hook, line, and sinker. And when they don't get what they want, what they think will bring ultimate satisfaction, they run to other things. They retreat into all sorts of things, drugs, alcohol. Or on the Christian spectrum, they, they, they retreat to their couch and they binge watch Netflix for 10 hours. Because they haven't, received what they hoped for. And deep within us, we, we know there's a void that no human romance can fill. Hannah has grief, and it's real, and we shouldn't downplay it. But God isn't silent, and he's not bored with her grief. He's there, and he hears. He, he isn't in, uninterested. He, he knows what she needs. He understands what we need. It's not a little more of this and a little of that. It's God. Is God working? You bet he is. He's working right now. As you sit right here, he's working. He's not sitting on his hands. He's doing a million things in the lives of his children right at this moment. So if God is working, second, does God care? And I'll answer it right away. Yes. Emphatically, yes. God cares, but it would be foolish to think that his concerns must be the same as our concerns. Does God care about Hannah? Does God care about his people? Well, let's look at the text. Verse nine, if they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And this may seem to the casual reader that she just had finished her meal and she's gonna step away for a walk. But the Hebrew word for arose indicates a decisive action. Hannah stood up and resolved, and she made a choice, and now something's different. She continues, now Eli, or the, the verse continues, now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant 
and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Eli was the priest, and he was sitting near the doorpost of the temple, and he sees Hannah come in to pray. And she's crying out to her God for her son. And then she would describe that service that she would give her son too. Peter Lethart, one commentator, writes, According to number six, the Nazarite separated himself from wine, from grapes, from cutting his hair, and from the dead. This is the, this is the, the thing she's giving her son too, okay? And in several details, the Nazarite resembled a priest, he continues, especially the high priest. Nazarites were to avoid contact with the dead as high priests were. Priests were not to drink wine or strong drink in the sanctuary, while the Nazarite was not supposed to drink wine or eat grapes at all. And Nazarites thus lived as if the whole world was a holy place. Their holy service, which often took the form of holy war, outside the sanctuary was comparable to the holy service of the priests in the sanctuary. This is what Hannah is saying in regards to the son that she's asking for. And, and what, what marks Hannah's prayer here? She, she was deeply distressed, it says in verse 10. She wept bitterly in verse 10. Affliction in verse 11. She's troubled in verse 15 and had anxiety and vexation in verse 16. Hannah prays out bitter, disappointed, dissatisfied with her current situation. She was a deeply unhappy woman. But out of that misery and unhappiness, she prays to the Lord. It should be clear to us as the reader that Hannah knows. Hannah knows and understands that the Lord has closed her womb. And she chooses better. She chooses to pray. And in her bitterness of soul, with many tears, out of grief and despair, she pours out her anguish. Our God is a God that allows her to do that. And she boldly comes before her God, as Hebrews says, with confidence, drawing near to the throne of grace that we may receive the mercy and find grace in time of need. And we should approach God the same way as Hannah. Our God can handle our tears. He can handle our grief and our anguish. It doesn't make God uncomfortable or nervous. You know, there's a unique logic behind Hannah's action here. We would call it the logic of real faith. To understand that your suffering is present ultimately because of God's hand in your life can lead to fatalism. You, you may say, if, if God is sovereign, then, then who am I to do anything but passively accept my lot? But friends, that's not the logic of real faith. Hannah could also fall in the trap of resentment to God. If, if he allowed this to happen to me, then I want nothing to do with God. This seems to be the plight of so many in our world, but this is not the logic of true faith. Faith in God means knowing and trusting God's sovereignty and his goodness toward us. It means to continue to believe his word. And we continue to, to pray and to read his word. We continue to remind ourselves, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And therefore, nothing in all of God's creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the logic of faith that leads us in our troubles. This is the logic of faith that sustains us when everything else in life falls away. This logic of faith reminds us that we serve a living and sovereign God. And having faith, this, this type of faith means rejoicing in God when all of our dreams come crashing down or when they're left completely unfulfilled. And in Hannah's prayer, we can hear her confidence in her God. She talks about his unfathomable wisdom, his incredible strength, his perfect beauty, his compassion for the weak, for broken and for sinful people. And she has found that her God is her greatest treasure. And because he is her greatest treasure, she doesn't need children to come and provide value and worth for her. You know, I believe in this moment, Hannah's experienced repentance and salvation. She has found her life, her security, her identity, her ultimate significance in God and God alone. And she's freed from the bondage that family had to be an idol. 
You know, Hannah still prays for a son, but her conviction is so much different than all the other times before in her life. She had asked for a son hundreds of times before, I'm sure, because she saw a deficiency in her life. She saw a deficiency in herself. Because before, her, her life was about her. Now she's asking for God. Even more importantly, she's asking for her people. She has come to know God as her sufficiency. He is now her treasure above everything else. And so she prays that when God gives her a son, she will give him back to the Lord for his glory and good. Look, she prays with God in focus here. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. He's probably not used to people praying. He, he doesn't see it very often. And so in verse 14, Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. You know, Eli's confused. And, and to me, it raises a question about Eli. Why, why would the priest be baffled when he sees Hannah praying? You know, if Israel had a leader who could tell the difference between a godly woman's heartfelt prayer and a drunken rabbling, then you would fully realize now the, the leadership crisis in Israel. Now, this comes into clearer focus next week as we look at the second half of chapter 2. Eli's incorrect rebuke of Hannah identifies the other issues that were present during the religious festivals also. But Hannah responds, verse 15, Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hmm. Her face was no longer sad. You know, as I read this section, you would think that the order of events would be different. Did you catch that? I think the order of events, it should be this way in our world, right? First, Hannah would go and pray and ask for a son. Second, what would happen next? She'd get pregnant. Right? Third, then she would rejoice and her face would no longer be sad. That, that makes sense. You have the need, you go and pray, and then God answers, and then you rejoice. But that's not what happens. Hannah goes and prays and asks for a son. Second, she's filled with joy. But God hasn't answered yet. She gets pregnant after. It seems backwards, right? It doesn't seem normal. It's amazing, isn't it? Because the order of events here are not empty of significance. Hannah found joy and deep faith as she found her deepest needs met in God. Not in the things that God gives. Faith filled Hannah. She found the source of joy and security not in a son, but in her God. Paul wrote to us in Philippians 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace doesn't come necessarily when God answers. It comes when we pray. When we worship God, when we focus on him. And we need to pour out our soul before God, like Hannah does here. Unfortunately, one reason I think we don't pray is because we think that we've got everything covered. And we don't need to pray. We think we can manage without God. You know, maybe never say that directly, but we live that. And so prayer becomes a duty for us. Prayer here is not a duty for Hannah. She, she didn't rush after the meal because, oops, I forgot to have my quiet time. I better get it done. That's not what she's doing. 
She prays from an anguished heart. She approaches God in terms of his majesty, even in the first, O Lord of hosts. She knows who God is. And all prayer should begin that way. We have to know the one whom we pray to. She also approaches God with the right view of herself. She calls herself your servant. You pray humbly with the right understanding of yourself. And then she makes her requests known. She makes them known to God. And Hannah knew that her only hope was God. And so she went to him. Her prayer changed things, but most importantly, her prayer changed her. And we don't pray to get things from God. We pray to get more of God. So we understand him more. We love him more. We appreciate him more. How are your prayers? What are they focused on? Well, verse 19, continuing on here, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. God cares. It's foolish for us to think that his concerns have to be exact as ours, but he cares. Scriptures say, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah 55. This is the reason, and all this, you see this pattern by Hannah. This is the big reason that we should be praying Scripture more than anything else. How else will we know and understand our God other than reading about him in his word? And then praying that. What creates great praying? It's a deep, real deep sense of our need and a a real deep sense of God and his care for us. And what fuels God honoring prayer is praying God's word. Remembering him. So God cared for Hannah as he does for his people. But third, what should we do? What should I do? You know, the end of the chapter one is now coming. Hannah prayed not for vengeance. Notice that. She doesn't pray for vengeance against Penna. She prays for a son that she might offer the son to God. Instead of filling her heart with bitterness and resentment, Hannah poured out her heart before the Lord. And God answered, and she'll have a son. But now what will she do? Will she make good on the promise that she made to the Lord? Will she follow through by giving her son over to the priest to to raise to a lifelong service to God? Or will she change her mind? Will she change her mind or her direction once she holds that baby in her arms? Verse 21, the man Elkanah and and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. These verses display a piety of Elkanah as he leads his family again in the annual pilgrimage to the festival And Hannah's mind is set on following through with her commitment to God. She wanted to see it through completely. Commentator William Blakely writes, Had she gone before her son was weaned, she must have taken him with her and brought him away with her. And that would have broken the, the, uh, the solemn nature of her transaction when at last she would take him for good and for all. No, the very first visit that she and her son should pay to Shiloh would be the decisive visit, the very first time that she should present herself at that holy place where God had heard her prayer and her vow would be the time when she would fulfill her vow completely. I also find Elkanah's words are significant here to Hannah at the end of verse 23. He says, may the Lord establish his word. What did he mean here? We, we might think that he would say, may the Lord establish your word in, in you or that you would keep your word. He's speaking to her, 
But, but the reference seems to be the Lord. And there's no direct answer given. We can only surmise when in fact he's saying. So when I hear this, when I read this, I hear Elkanah saying, may the Lord establish his word. I hear that the Lord is going to answer and fulfill his promise, not only to you, but to his people. Hannah's prayers is more than just for Hannah. It's for all of Israel. And the Lord answered the cry of the faithful remnant by bringing Samuel. So perhaps Elkanah spoke more profoundly than he actually knew. God would now bring a, a leader to his people. Well, verse 24, and when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with her three-year-old bull and flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. As Hannah presents Samuel, we should notice her words in verses 27 and 28. Four times she uses the form of the Hebrew word, which is actually Saul, which means to ask. It would read this way, for a better translation, for this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking which I asked from him, and I also have given back what he asked to Yahweh. All the day he, days he lives, he is the one that is asked for Yahweh. She gives them over to serve God. Can you imagine what it had been like for Hannah to do this? You know, as a parent of four young kids, this section completely rocked me this week. You know, Samuel is between three and four years old, maybe as old as five, when he's given over to Eli. I can't imagine what that would have been like. You know, it cuts to the core of why we have kids. What is the reason to have kids? What should be the motivation behind it as believers? You know, if you and I believe that having kids is a, is a means to bring greater joy to ourselves and our lives, then what happens when your kids disappoint you? If our kids are, are only there to con continue the, the family name, then what happens when the Lord takes them home at an early age? You know, I believe that God gives us children for us to do our dead level best, to raise them, to fear him, and to follow him. We raise kids to glorify God, to worship him. And it's our duty to train and disciple our kids to follow Jesus. And we won't all give our kids to full-time service like Hannah does. And so please do not drop off your three-year-old to the office. It's <laughs> not what it's saying. If so, he'll go home with Ryan. That's not the point. In seriousness, how many of you are praying and encouraging your kids to consider serving the Lord full time? And maybe the Lord won't do that, but are, are you afraid of that? Fearful of your child serving the Lord full time? I'll, I'll just be honest. I have the best job in the world. I believe that. You know, Hannah's display of sacrifice was meant to, to show not only herself, but to God, that all she wanted was God. I'm sure she loved Samuel. But she knew that he would forever be her son. But she loved God more. Fourth, last, does prayer change things? Let me ask, do you believe in God? I find that is a strange question to ask during a church service. I mean, you're here on a Sunday morning. You could be home watching NFL. And you're here. So you must believe in God, right? 
And yet I ask the question because of those of us that do believe in God, we very easily forget the astonishing difference the belief makes in our understanding how life works. To believe in the God of the Bible means that we view this world much differently than everyone else that doesn't. And to those that do not believe in God, not, not just say they believe in God, they, they don't understand him. They understand how this world works much differently. And as a result, they live much differently. And as we come to chapter two, we come to Hannah, who's praying again. And it's a prayer, again, by a woman who has no children. She's married to no one special, no one famous. She's living out in the sticks. And she sort of prays this prayer and then drops the mic and walks off the stage. Never to be heard from again. It's kind of like, I'm out. That's it. And she exits as if to say that this was never really about her. This whole story and the characters in the story are never the main character. They're never the focus. Hannah and her, her barrenness are never the focus. The focus is always on God. You know, there's some, definitely some things in here that we should emulate in these verses that were covered this morning. But they shouldn't be the things that captivate our hearts and our minds. It should be God. And let me say this about the act of preaching. It's kind of you that when I hear at the end of the service, you come and say how well maybe I did preaching. But if all you take away is whether how Jeff did well or Jeff did poor, then you have the wrong focus. Nothing, and I mean nothing, thrills my heart more when I stand at the door and I hear people who are captured by God of who he is and what he means to them, that he is glorious, that he is to be worshiped, that he is faithful, that he is loving. And so if you take any, anything away from our time here this morning, may it be a greater appreciation and awe of our God. God is the main thing, and he is worthy to be worshipped. So keep your focus on God. I want to read through and walk through these last 10 verses of her prayer, and then verse 11 here. Verse 1, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. This, this woman who prayed in the last chapter out of anxiety and vexation now prays so much differently. Her heart is no longer sad, but it's jubilant in her God. She recounts the salvation that she has in her Lord. And salvation is such an important word in the Bible because it is God and God alone who saves. And in verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Quite simply, those who are like Hannah, who know the God of the Exodus, they know a God of power. And there's nothing that we can compare to him. He is holy. He is our rock, our security, our protection from our enemies. Who can you compare him to? Verse 3, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. He's a God of knowledge, a God who knows everything. And you've maybe met some really smart people in your life. And they can answer all sorts of questions. But they are dropping the bucket to our God. He knows all. There are no secrets from God. There are no mysteries to God. There is no way of fooling or deceiving God. He knows everything about you. He knows why you do what you do. And he knows the same about the person sitting next to you. He knows everything. God knows all. In verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Perhaps she's thinking back to the Egyptians who, who chased after God's people to the Red Sea. 
The Lord demolished this human power. It's nothing compared to our God, but he says, then the feeble bind on strength. And maybe that's what she's looking forward to in chapter 17 as, as lowly David steps up to face Goliath. Human power and human weakness look completely different if you believe in God as Hannah believes in God. You're not impressed by human power. You're not discouraged by human weakness when you know our God. Verse five, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. And so we turn from human power to human plenty. We looked at a story yesterday morning, the men's breakfast, of a man in 1 Samuel 25 who refused to help David. And we learned yesterday, man, didn't we, that God took care of Nabal. He wiped him out. And people who have plenty can seem as though they could never be in need. Unless you see yourselves the way that Hannah sees, with the eyes that she sees. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Hannah had an extraordinary grasp of reality. The Lord changes life to death and death to life. He is the sovereign one. In him rests all power to life and death. In verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And poverty and riches are in the power of God. God is the one who determines these things. They are under his control, not the world's. The government doesn't determine it. The stock market doesn't determine it. It's God. In verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. You know, Hannah has an extraordinary view of life, doesn't she? She's a living example of verse 8. She was a nobody. She lived an unimportant life in an unimportant place. But God is the one who raises up those that he wishes. But not only that, he's the creator of everything. Not only created everything, he sustains everything. Do you realize that you woke up this morning because God saw fit to wake you up? God saw fit to give you air to breathe to make your lungs work. God is the one who sustains everything. This world does not run on some principles that have been put in place and are independent from God. No, it all belongs to God and all the world is dependent upon him. Verse nine, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The winners at the end are not the strong, the powerful, the wealthy, the famous, the popular, the successful. No, they're the faithful ones, those that follow the Lord. In the verse 10, she ends her prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And the last phrase here is a warning. It's not wise to set up yourself against the Lord. You know, the book of 1 Samuel repeats this over and over. The God who created all things keeps it going. The one who knows all things and who gives and takes away from his creation, this one will judge the ends of the earth. He will judge everyone on this earth and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Every prayer that we give is like a prayer of Hannah. Powerless creatures confessing their powerlessness to a powerful God and giver of life and all that's good. You know, this is significant. This whole story is significant to this story because in this prayer, it's the beginning of Israel's renewal. God working through the situation of a bunch of nobodies. Verse 11 ends this section. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. We'll learn, Lord willing, more next week. 
know, God delights to work with the ordinary. Don't despise the ordinary. Whether that's the ordinary day or the ordinary job or the ordinary person. Do you see the pattern? You know, Hannah starts to see the pattern. God works with the marginalized. He, he works with the weak. He works with the excluded. Not with the insider, but the outsider. Not with the strong, but with the weak. He works with the poor and the barren and the rural woman like her. And I have learned that God's faithfulness to you and in your life is best seen through the rearview mirror. We want the windshield to be clear. We want to see it that direction. We want the GPS zoned in to the exact place we're going. We want to know all of that. We want to see clearly and we want to know where we're going. But the windshield is foggy, maybe broken by the mistakes in our life, and it's pouring outside. And the GPS is on the fritz, it's not working. It doesn't have a clear signal. And our confidence doesn't come from looking out the windshield, it comes from looking out the rearview mirror. When we see God's work in our lives, his graciousness, his supply, his faithfulness to us, God brings things in front of us that seem impossible to navigate. And they're brought to us by God. Hannah was barren because God closed her womb. Maybe this bothers you. God chose this for her. God did this. She couldn't see how this was going to work out. But in her prayer, she simply prays scripture and she looks back to see what God had now done. You know, there's another unknown woman that we hear about in the New Testament. She too is from a small, unimportant town. She's not very significant in the eyes of the world. She will also, in the New Testament, give birth to a child that will forever change the world. She will give us the Son of God, Emmanuel. God with us. And Mary's song in Luke 1 has a striking similarity to Hannah's here in 1 Samuel 2. Let me read it for you. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and is holy in his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Jesus was born to a virgin woman by the power of God. And God was saying more clearly than ever, I am the one who brings salvation. But here's what is even greater about Jesus. You know, we have Isaac and Samuel and Samson. They got up and they took power and they saved their people from social and political oppression. But Jesus lost power. Jesus was like Hannah herself and like Mary. He was marginalized. He was excluded. He wasn't beautiful. He was beaten and he was tortured. And he won through losing. He saved us through defeat. He paid the penalty for our sins. And that's our Messiah. The Messiah is like Hannah, like Mary, like all these unwanted, infertile, excluded women. Jesus like them. He is the ultimate example of them. This is how God works. He works through weakness. He works through the marginal. He loves them because his salvation is by grace. It's not for people who think that they're so strong. It's for people who know that they're not. It's not for people who think they're on the inside. It's for the people who know that they're spiritually bankrupt. 
And the only possible answer is the grace of God. That's how Jesus did it. That's how Jesus does it. That's what he's still doing. You'll be only saved when you realize that you cannot save yourself. You have to rely on Jesus Christ. It's only through the power of the cross and the power of the risen Christ that you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the the story of Hannah. And what we're reminded and given again to understand how you work in the lives of your children. And God, I know many in this room are surrounded by impossible situations, difficulties that lie ahead. And they are so desperate to look out the the front windshield to see and to know and understand how things are going to work out. And yet, God, you call us to look backwards, to remember who you are and what you have done. This is so common, a theme in this book, God, of remembering our God. Help us to be people who think that way. Help us to be persistent in our prayers, God. Help us to be able to bring our hurts, our anguish, our pain to you, knowing that you care. You still care. Remind us of that this day, God. God, help us to remind one another. And I pray for us as a church family we can be involved in each other's lives, whether that's meeting with one another during the week or just a, a text message or a phone call to pray with another, one another, to encourage one another. Help us to be sensitive of that and each other's needs. And I thank you for this church. I thank you for this family. May we glorify you. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.